Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Reimagining Love. I'm joined today by Dr. Nan Wise, who is a certified sex therapist, a relationship specialist, a neuroscience researcher, and the author of the book, Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Purpose-Filled Life. Don't we all want that? Her research has addressed gaps in the literature regarding the neural basis of human sexuality, and her work has garnered international attention, and you're going to find out why. Dr. Nan has appeared on the Today Show and contributed her expert opinion to many media outlets and high-profile podcasts. She writes regularly for Psychology Today and for Glamour's Ask Dr. Nan column. Dr. Nan's work is all about the benefits and science behind pleasure And she's conducted some truly fascinating lab studies to understand brain activity during sex. During our conversation, you'll hear her use the term healthy hedonism to refer to the pleasures in life that feel good and are good for us. These can include connection with partners, sex that feels safe, playful, and relational, eating foods that are healthy and delicious, and moving our bodies. She reminds us that prioritizing healthy pleasure is not a luxury, but a necessity because it keeps us in good health and empowers us to lead compassionate and fulfilling lives. I can't wait for you to hear from Dr. Nan. Hi, Nan. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Alexandra, and I'm very happy to be here as well. You know, the Reimagining Love audience is capturing our first date. I've been aware of your work for a long time, but you and I have never met before. So this is fun. Same here. I've always been interested. I'm crazy about relationships. So your work has always fascinated me. 
Well, I am so excited to dive in with you on all things pleasure and anhedonia and orgasm and all of that good stuff. But I want to start the way that I love starting with all of my guests, which is with the relational self-awareness question. So are you ready for that question? I am so ready for that. Good. Okay. So Nan, what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately? So I thought about this question. I thought it was great. And really the biggest relationship I'm working on now is with me. This is the cutting edge for me. I'm 65 years old now. And one of the things that I've given myself since I turned 65 is I've gone back to therapy. And the reason why I've gone back to therapy is number one, with Medicare, it doesn't cost me anything out of pocket, which is one of the better things about getting older. But it was giving me the opportunity to really spend time listening to myself and being listened to and thinking about the next leg of my journey. So I've written about in my book, my family's challenges with our nervous systems. So I come from a long line of very anxious people. And so I had my first panic attack when I was about 21 working in a psychiatric hospital. And although I would say that I'm basically an optimistic person and a happy person, I have really throughout my life struggled with anxiety. And as a result of the anxiety, it kind of has been hard for me to focus on my pleasure. What do I want? What's good for me? And to be able to enjoy the quality of my everyday life as I go into the next journey. So I have two grown kids and three grandchildren. And my life is very interesting. I have challenges, you know, in terms of all sorts of things. And that being said, to be able to kind of teach what I need to know, which is about prioritizing our pleasure as not a luxury, but a necessity for good emotional, physical, sexual well-being. So I'm having a kind of new relationship energy with myself these days. Oh, okay. In that response, Nan, you're modeling a lot of really important stuff for us. First and foremost is this idea that you can be an expert. I mean, you are like literally an expert in pleasure and you are telling us that centering and honoring and valuing your own pleasure continues to be a practice for you. You know, I think sometimes healing work can feel extra intimidating because it feels like there's this group of people who are the experts and they have it all figured out and the rest of us just have to catch up to them. And what you're saying is that actually you are learning and teaching and learning and teaching and whatever you figured out about pleasure at 45 has to and gets to get figured out again for you now at 65, hey? Yeah, yeah. And being more prioritized. And something I love that I saw in your book is talking about being able to be present to the information from our bodies, to be able to welcome the experience that we're being emotional beings. The point of my book, really the reason why I wrote Why Good Sex Matters, is really to help people understand that we have wired in emotional systems that have not been, you know, sort of acknowledged by psychology or medicine yet that 
are wired in such that we feel that in our bodies. So when we pay attention to our bodies, you talk about listening into the information. This is key, Alexandra, is being able to notice that, first of all, we have a body. Yeah. And what's going on in our bodies, like, hello, because a lot of my clients are like heads on sticks, you know, and I'm in my head a lot too, you know, so it's not unusual for people to be very cerebral. We live in a culture that values that. So being able to pay attention to the signals from our body and get the information from those signals so that we can know what needs to change? What do we need to change? How do we need to operate so that we are taking that information and then using it intelligently? And if we're not in our sensations and we're not paying attention to being in our bodies, you know, the other thing, and I'm sure you see this a lot in, in relationships, is that people tend to get very flooded and having very big feelings in relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, in relationships, the emotions are contagious. So very often people are getting so activated. And then what happens is, is they kind of shut down or they get emotionally hijacked. So the point of my book is really unpacking the basement of the brain that we share with all mammals and many other animals and advancing the work in this area where we have to pay attention to somatic body stuff, and also working in a field now where I just finished a paper for the Journal of Sexual Medicine reviews on affective neuroscience in terms of the implications for research and for treatment so that we are able to better teach our clients and also learn ourselves how to operate this body-mind that we're wired for. So, you know, like when you think about it, you look around right now, people are triggered. Right. It's a tough time. It's a really tough time. You know, mm-hmm. and we, you know, I feel that in my body. I'm anxious about things, what's happening in, around, you know, all sorts of things, women's rights to their bodies, politics and all of that. And what's really, really important to remember is that our capacity and our ability to experience pleasure empowers us to be more effective. So if we're spending our time in the defensive, you know, systems like fear, wired in rage or the system that is really a big part of our attachment system, the panic part of the what's called the panic care continuum. This is like the core wiring of our emotional attachments. If we're in our defenses, we're not going to be creative. We're not going to be playful. We're not going to be able to lead ourselves and other people from a place of being well-informed by our emotions and good consumers of our emotions. What you're saying is really important. You're helping us move towards pleasure. But what you're saying is that moving towards pleasure is also about kind of quieting down the parts of us that can get so scared and dysregulated, that it's about not overriding those parts, but tending to them, quieting them, working with them so that the capacity for pleasure arises, right? The defenses have to shut down for something else to open up. But can you back us up and like talk about, okay, so what is pleasure? Like, how do we, how do we think about pleasure in relation to what you're describing in terms of these defenses and the places that we're at risk of going when we get scared or anxious or angry? That was beautifully put. Thank you for your being able to put that into a nutshell. But pleasure, very simply, is that the brain 
body mind is wired for pleasure. Pleasure are things that feel good and that we want to approach. And pain is stuff that hurts and we want to go away. And the capacity for this doesn't have to be learned. You don't have to teach babies to love the taste of mother's milk because it tastes delicious. You don't have to teach them to be afraid of pain. Pain hurts and they will be afraid of pain. So we come with this beautiful, older, ancient parts of our brain that basically these signals, pleasure is a learning signal. So if, for example, if you get some reward, like a little bit of juice, your brain is going to register that as a reward and is going to pay attention to the circumstances that are associated with that reward. So if it's a bell that's rung, you'll learn the connection between the bell and the delicious juice. Or, and this happens a lot in sexuality and relationships, if you have an experience that is painful, what happens, that experience imprints itself in, uh uh-oh, pain, the brain prioritizes things that hurt. We're going to learn, we're going to pay attention to it. We'll make a connection between that circumstance and the negative, painful experience. So we get shaped a lot by the signals of pleasure and pain that really are the basic learning signals. That's really interesting. The pleasure is a learning signal. Pleasure says, stay here, stay here, drop down into this stay with this, go with it, like follow it. It's it basically, because learning is about curiosity, presence, attunement. It's the opposite of what you were describing as pain, which is about vigilance, you know, and avoidance and retreat. So pleasure is a, that's a really simple way. Pleasure is about, I'm in a state where I can learn and I can stay with this and keep pursuing this. So it's something that feels good. And ideally, pleasures that feel good ideally would be good for us. And what I like to talk about is healthy hedonism, the pleasures that feel good and are good for us. Connection with partners, sex with the right circumstances and people, foods that are healthy and delicious, you know, moving our bodies can feel good and good for us. Unfortunately, and this is a big piece of what motivated me to write the book, is that the brain systems have been hijacked by how we use our attention. For example, social media, ding, ding, ding. It's ringing those dopamine neurons, getting our attention, but we're not learning anything. And what's happening, it's flattening our ability to feel the bump up of dopamine that would be a learning signal, what we call phasic dopamine that should make a connection. This feels good and is good for us, or this, like in the case of pain, this feels bad and isn't good for us. Like eating two bags of Doritos tastes good, but it's not good for us. And if you listen to your body, your body's not going to feel so good after you eat two bags of Doritos. So, you know, and they have engineers who make flavors addicting, who make social media and posting addictive attention engineers and us being on our devices 
we're basically sabotaging the way that the mind-brain works effectively. We're overriding. We're overriding a feedback loop. Because you're right. In order for me to eat two bags of Doritos, I have to be overriding cues from my body that are telling me to slow down, take a break, assess this. Just like with social media, I think there is so much overriding that we don't even know. Right? We're bypassing like some some part of this does not feel good, but we're overriding those signals. Exactly. We're overriding the signals. And what's happening is as a result of how we're using our attention, we are basically inhibiting the emotional brain's ability to give us good information so we can make good decisions. And you see this a lot nowadays. Okay, well, let's tie this to sex because this one time a few years ago, you and Kim Kardashian shared something in common, which is that both of you ladies broke the internet. That one time you broke the internet with your female brain orgasm video. I'm so happy you noticed. I'd almost forgotten about that. Yeah, can we just rewind the tape? Tell us that story and then help us understand the link between orgasm and pleasure. We'll get into all that. But just like, tell us about that time that you broke the whole internet. So (laughs) we were busy. I'd gone back to uh, get my PhD when I was 50. When my kids were gone, I always was interested in the brain. And once they invented fMRI where you didn't have to torture animals, I was in. So I went back to study with Barry Kamasurik. Pause that. Because I love that you went back for a PhD at age 50. So everyone who is listening, who's got some story in their head about how they're too old for something, something, you just told us that at 65, you're starting therapy again. At 50, you went to start your PhD. So I love all of what you're doing so far in terms of teaching us, also just reminding us to let go of those stories about any of us being too old for any damn thing. I had so much fun going back to grad school. I was the world's oldest teaching assistant. I'd already taught graduate school, clinical sexology, but here I am, you know, finding my way around a brand new thing. But to make a long story short, not a lot of people do sex research for lots and lots of reasons. In fact, when the correspondent from Nightline came to film one of my studies for my dissertation, The first question she asked me, which wasn't aired, she didn't include that footage, was, can you explain to our viewers why you study sex and nothing like important like cancer? Because this is the attitude. And you've Mm -hmm. probably been hearing all of the stuff about how little we know about the innervation of the clitoris, which makes pelvic surgery really crazy. And, you know, there's so many gaps in the literature. So... I went back to graduate school and I saw all these gaps in the literature. I was working with Barry Kamasarak, who I'd met when I was 21, when I was first thinking about going to graduate school, but didn't want to do animal research. Make a long story short, one of the projects when you're doing brain stuff, one of the projects that we did for a poster at Society for Neuroscience, rather than do a poster, was we created a video of my brain data having an orgasm. So we use my data. And I'll tell you, I had so many orgasms in the scanner. I never want to go back (laughs) into a scanner. 
So, you know, when you're a researcher, you do have to pilot your own sure, studies. that's right. And to Barry's credit, Barry, when we started to do the male mapping study and the male orgasm study, Barry, at the tender age of probably 78 or 75, went and donated his orgasm to science, <laughs> too. So you got to put your money where your mouth that's is. That's right. That's right. Oh. Right. So we made this we made this video and it shows basically like a whole bunch of brain regions, you know, sort of like uh, turning colors. And then when it got white hot, which is when the orgasm happened, it was like, whoa, the whole brain looked pretty white hot. So when that went online with the company that did it, it broke the Internet. It broke his server. So but, you know, what's also very interesting is the comments that people made. Okay, which were what? Well, this would have been hot if the woman having the orgasm wasn't 50-something. <gasps> that was one of the comments. Ew, yeah, ew, ew, okay. Ew. And then there was a really funny one where, because if you looked at the video, you can still Google it, Rutgers Brain Orgasm. There's a piece of it on there. Somebody said, oh my God, I knew about orgasm, but I didn't know the head spins around 360 degrees because we had an image like that. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> so one of the things that motivated me to study sex was the more we can talk about it, the more that we can destigmatize it as an important topic. And, and even in the psychology department, what a bunch of prudes. I was shocked at how uncomfortable some of my colleagues were when I would present my year-end talks, although I was really comfortable with it. So I think they kind of picked up on that for me. But the graduate director, who was a man, maybe five, maybe 10 years older than me, one day saw me and he goes and he yells across the, the quad, hey, sex maniac. Oh, so okay. it's like, so okay. <laughs> I didn't take it. I didn't take it badly, but it just goes to show that even in psychology departments, people are uncomfortable just talking about sex. So that's why it's so important for us to go out there and talk about all aspects of being sexual beings all sorts of conversations. And I find with my couples, they have a hard time talking about sex. That's what I was just going to say. I was going to really normalize that. I oftentimes normalize how much discomfort there is in academia, in the clinical realm, talking about sex, talking about orgasm, talking about pleasure. And so that, I, that validates for, for regular old ordinary people that that discomfort is not just yours. It is systemic. And it is even in these places where it would benefit, right? It would benefit. I mean, sex research is vitally, vitally important. Your findings, which I want to get more specific about, about what happens to the brain during orgasm and why it's so important for our bodies to experience, like literally important for our health to experience pleasure, one of the ways of which is orgasm. But we can't get there when everyone's afraid and there's so much stigma and there's so much shame. So I think that's very important to normalize and validate that couples aren't just coming up with this discomfort because something is wrong with them. It's collective. That's a very important point. And that would normalize it because when you realize that where are people hearing about sex? They're not, they're not learning in medical school. When I went to social work school, which was my first clinical degree, I took a course in human sexuality. It was an elective. 
Now, I've taught in psychology graduate programs, and it's required for marriage and family students. But many people go through all of their training to become a therapist, even couples therapists, and they don't take courses. They're not given courses in human sexuality. So it's not just the doctors who aren't learning. No, that's right. And it's a big problem. And it's a reminder of how important it is for everybody you know, therapists who didn't get trained this way and again, regular people to just become lifelong learners to then say, okay, my doctor's not going to be able to teach me about this. I didn't learn about it in school. And so how am I going to become a lifelong learner? And thank God we're living in this time where someone can listen to this podcast, grab your book. You know, like there's so many ways that we can learn now, but it really is incumbent upon us to take responsibility for our own understanding. I think a big issue for women, I was just uh, writing for the, uh, uh, writing a lot last week for the orgasm consensus for ISHWISH, the International uh, Society for Women's Sexual Health about orgasm. And when you think about it, one of the big issues with, with the orgasm gap is that women from the time that they're young girls are trained to be objectified rather than to be embodied as sexual beings. So combine that where we're like here for the male gaze, that's really a very robust kind of learning that causes us to, many women like are so uncomfortable with their bodies because they're, they're unhappy with how their bodies look. They don't recognize how good it feels to be in a body. So what was very cool about my research participants, so I had a whole bunch of fabulous women between the ages of 24 and 74 who came to the scanner, which is the least sexy place, and they had to keep themselves really still when you masturbate or when you're being masturbated because we had two conditions And they all said the same thing, because one of the things I wanted to know, in addition to what happens in the brain, is I wanted to know, how do you get to the place in your life where you want to come and feel so comfortable in your body that you're going to, you know, donate an orgasm to science? And again, talk about pathologizing. Somebody in my department asked me during a presentation, and this wasn't true of everybody, but it just goes to show one of the people asked me if my participants were exhibitionists. Did they get off on coming to donut? So, but this just goes to show what people think. And by the way, here's a funny one. When we did the female studies, when the women were having orgasms, originally our scanner was at the medical school and people would wander in. It was like they thought it was very interesting. They'd find reasons to wander into the control room. Uh-huh. And then we moved over to, uh, we had our own scanner at Rutgers, Newark. And that's where I finished my dissertation studies. It was a lot of years of ramping up and trying to figure out how we were going to do this. When we turned around to do the male studies, nobody, including the physicist who, who was supposed to run the scanner, wanted to come. So. Oh, jeez. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I wanted to put a sign on the door said, when when the scanner's rocking, don't come here knocking. That's right. You know, it was no, just... <laughs> this, is, this is science. This is some private kind of science going on right now. <laughs> Respect the process. 
And that the people were all the way into the scanner. If you've ever been in an MRI machine yeah. and you your head's the in there, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. see the feet and we pulled down the shade. I would watch the feet to make sure they were okay because I couldn't hear the people. But it was like, why would someone consider? Actually, back to the women. I remember why I brought this up is that the women who participated in the scans all said the same thing. What was that? They weren't necessarily comfortable with their sexuality in the beginning. They all came to love their bodies. They had a very important kind of journey where they learned to be in their bodies and to love their bodies and love to be in their bodies rather than being an object. Which is so, I I hate that that's so often the story is a story of reclamation, right? I wish that we, I wish that girls and women would never lose that to start with and have to reclaim it. But I love that the women who participated in your study were able to say, yeah, the world wanted me to dis, you know, to put distance between myself and my body, between myself and my sexuality. But I said, enough is enough. And I came home to my body. And then the women in your study took it a step further, which I also have have seen, and it, and it brings me to tears every time, is like this part of, I imagine for the participants in your study, there was a kind of generosity of like, I will share, I'll share my experience. Like you can learn from what my brain does during orgasm because I'm here for my fellow women, right? Like if, if what I, if, if this can support other women healing and finding pleasure, like almost like an activist sense or a generosity, I would imagine. Absolutely. They were claiming their power and they were sharing that with us. And it was just to me, I, the experiences that I had with at the scanner with both the women who came to donate their orgasms and their partners who one of the conditions, imagine this, Alexandra, your partner's in the scanner. You can't see her. You can't hear her. She can't see you or hear you. Your job is to manipulate her clitoris until she has an orgasm. Wow. Well, not an easy task. No. Okay. So, but the fact that we were even able in some instances to get orgasms from both self-stimulation as well as partner stimulation is to me just the testament of these people's commitment to hang in there and to be, you know, give of themselves, of their time and energy. It was just a beautiful experience. It, well, those, I imagine that those couples were, there was quite a bit of, quite a bit of relationship satisfaction, right? And, and quite a bit of like knowing each other, like a deep connection, because so much of partnered sex is these sort of micro feedback loops where you know how to move your body because you are getting feedback from your partner's body. And so in this, con- in this condition, in your lab, there was very, very little feedback. They couldn't see, they couldn't hear. And and it was so funny because I had a record for the men, happened to be men stimulating the women in the scanner. I recorded synced instructions to begin stimulating your partner. And then when the partner pressed a button to indicate that their orgasm started, then it would play the loop of me saying your partner's orgasm has started, continue stimulating. And then when the woman pressed the button that the orgasm ended, then they heard in their headphones, your the part your partner's orgasm has ended. You can stop stimulation. So it was like really a very, very, very 
taxing kind of thing to be able to do. And my participants were just, they were just wonderful. There was even a 74-year-old woman who never had an orgasm in 30 years of marriage, who started on her own journey of learning about herself and her body and everything and, and coming to donate an orgasm for her. She donated two orgasms, one from her own self-stimulation and one through a partner stimulation. And I'm thinking to myself, how cool is this person that she's made this important to her? Oh, well, part of her journey, I imagine, is grieving the 30 lost years where she, for what, I mean, the constraints, right? When a woman is not having orgasms, the constraints to stepping into either working with her partner differently, connecting with her body differently, the constraints can be so big. And so I can imagine the amount of grief she had for 30 lost years. And then she became orgasmic. She and her partner found a way and she was like, I'm absolutely donating one of these bad boys to science. Right. <laughs> and now we are starting a study of anorgasmia at the scanner when women aren't able to experience orgasm for us to be able to see if there's anything that we can see that's happening different in terms of whether the signals are getting to that place in the brain that registers sensations from the genitals. So if anybody's listening to the podcast and has difficulty having or can't have orgasms and lives anywhere near the tri-state area and would like to participate, we can't give anybody answers for them. So it's not like we're going to be able to tell the person what's wrong with their brain, but it's also legitimizing this as a study and also getting people to put attention on that we need to be able to fill in the gaps in the literature about the sexual brain, even when things apparently aren't working. So there's so much, so much that we need to know. So one of the things that you found, Nan, is that orgasm is linked to increased blood flow to 80 regions of the brain. Can you tell us more about some of the things that your research has revealed about orgasm? I know that's a huge question. Yeah, it's a big question. And I think really the key here is understanding that fMRI is an indirect measure of neuronal activity. So when areas in the brain get active, the brain sends more oxygen there, like in anticipation. So we're measuring the quality of the blood is different in terms of its magnetic quality when it's oxygenated versus non-oxygenated. Right. So you're, it's, a, it's a, the colors, and that's when you were describing the video, is the colors moving to parts of the brain. That's showing where oxygenated blood is flowing to which parts of the brain. Right. So when we analyze the data, which comes out as these huge things of numbers, we have statistical things that we can then notice, like what we make a model. So as stimulation starts, I collected data at various time points. So at the beginning of stimulation, in the middle of stimulation, and right before orgasm, and then at orgasm, and then when orgasm was over. So I looked at those selected time points. And what you can see in the brain is that many regions start to get active. So sensory regions, you know, that are getting registering sensations, the regions of the brain that that basically integrate sensation, come on board, as well as obviously our motor areas, since not only are we 
doing the stimulation, but our bodies in response to sexual stimulation, we start to have motor changes, you know, where we start to feel tension in the body and all of that. And so orgasm itself is when the brain reaches this peak sort of experience and then the the blood flow goes down. But what's important to notice is that over the whole course of stimulation, more and more regions of the brain start to kick in and get activated. So it's kind of like exercise for the brain. It really gets a lot of oxygen. And then what we also saw is as the orgasm started to kind of click in, that there were areas that are responsible for secreting a lot of those feel-good chemicals in the brain, pain-relieving chemicals, feel-good chemicals, the neuropeptides. The hypothalamus was very, very busy, and the reward centers were very, very busy. So to make a long story short, sensory, motor, sensory integration, reward regions, all got very active with and through the sexual stimulation, culminating in orgasm and then resolving. Which highlights, I mean, I think of, I think first of all, it just, it normalizes just how embodied orgasm is. I think for some people, right, orgasm sort of is, if somebody has a long history of maybe shame about masturbation or complex feelings about when and how they orgasm, like I think there's something about when you name all the different regions of the brain that are involved, you're really normalizing like this is a this is a full body experience. It is a deeply felt experience, a deeply felt and sensed experience and a beneficial experience. So not just ought we not feel ashamed of our orgasms, but just also to know that there's that there's benefit that it's really, as you said, like exercise for the brain. And there's a lot of good data. Beverly Whipple first wrote a white paper for Planned Parenthood years ago. Beverly was one of my mentors and very dear friend. In fact, I owe her a phone call. So, But sexual activity on a regular basis is associated with a lot of good health benefits, both for men and for women. So it's kind of like, hello. And I think a big issue is that we need to get off of this idea that sex has to look a certain way. You know, it's got, we have a sexual script that means that we're supposed to do some kind of genital stimulation and then there's supposed to be orgasms in all the right places. And what I write about in the book is if we can get out of those defenses, if we can get out of fear, rage, and panic, and we can get curious, which is the seeking system, playful and caring, and then we can access lust. You're not going to access lust if you don't feel safe. The lust system is not going to come online, nor is the play system. So if we thought of sex as just being able to play together, like in the playground with our partners, and we give up this idea that we're supposed to have active sexual desire, that's a whole other rant. You know, we know the difference between active and receptive sexual desire. It's not, look, it's nice to have sexual desire. It's nice to get turned on, but there's also lots of ways that we can access pleasure and sexual satisfaction without having the experience of desire to begin with. So we get hung up with all the wrong things and we need to be able to be physical and playful and enjoy getting physical, touching and being touched. You know, when you talked about fear, rage, and panic being antithetical to play, 
I think about all the couples in my practice where there's just so much difficulty around sex that has to do with, I mean, a lot of different things, but like longstanding patterns of miscommunication or she's, you know, she has been overriding pain cues from her body so as not to rock the boat because if she says this hurts, then he's going to get defensive or he's going to pout, you know, and that even if she is kind of white knuckling it through a sexual experience because she is angry or she is, you know, uncomfortable, even if she's white knuckling it through, her body knows darn well, right? Her body knows darn well that this does not feel good. And it becomes this pattern very often paired with faked orgasms. And it's the exact opposite of what you're talking about, sex being something that's playful, right? A playground of experience. Playful and pleasurable. And, you know, I think we also like to use your word normalize. A lot of women are working hard outside of the house. They're working hard inside of the house. They're stressed out. They're caretaking children, parents, and all of that. And it's very natural under those circumstances for us to lose our lust, access to lust. And then it becomes a big issue. And then when it becomes a big issue, People lose their ability to get curious and playful about it and to think about, like, if we redefine sex as not involving what we think it's supposed to involve, and it becomes, let's have pleasurable physical time together. Maybe it's a soak in the hot tub if you're lucky to have one. Maybe it's a walk in the woods. And we stop making it so much about sex, having to look a certain way. Then I think we will rediscover ourselves and find sort of the way to bridge that gap between where we spend most of our days in our heads and stressed out and where we might be more receptive to be able to explore the, you know, some kind of sexual pleasure with each other. Yep. Well, because it it goes back to what you're saying in the beginning about how our brains will pair pleasure with certain experiences and pain with certain experiences. So a walk in the woods in which I'm really attending to the way the air feels on my skin, the way the crunch of the leaves underneath my feet, and I'm with my partner. I basically am now pairing pleasurable, relaxing, my defenses are down experiences with my partner being right there next to me. And that's a really important syncing up to have that then can be built upon when we're talking about something that is more intimate, like touch and sexual intimacy. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of my work with people, I realize whether it's about sex or about us being too in our heads with anxiety, myself included and depression, is getting back to our senses. And when I talk about our senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, being able to sort of prioritize and practice that is a way to get embodied again and being in our bodies. Then we're more attuned from moment to moment about, you know, whether it could feel good for us to explore in some way with our partner, what do we actually need and want in the moment? I think that's self-attunement rather than thinking about we've got to, you know, satisfy our partners or we have to do this. It's another to-do list. And I do want to say one thing about where your mind is when you're having sex. So let me, let me explain this. Barry and Beverly did the first study of brain 
under orgasm with spinal cord injured women in 2004. The only other lab crazy enough to study the brain on orgasm is a bunch of people in Holland with a PET scanner rather than fMRI. To make a long story short, not bore you with the details, some of their results indicated that the prefrontal cortex, the thinking mind needed to deactivate for women to have orgasms. Now, my dissertation addressed that discrepancy in the literature because Barry and Beverly didn't find that years ago. And I went back and I did the study looking at partner, which they had done in Holland, and I looked at self and partner, and we didn't find any indication of the frontal regions deactivating. And that's really because the fMRI is a better method for studying things over time. But I thought to myself, here's, and you still see this in the media, yet your brain has to turn off for you to have an orgasm. Good luck with that. It's another thing that we have to do. So what I say, and this is one of the findings in my research was I had, I I put a lot of things in the experiment. I had women thinking just before they did any physical stimulation, thinking about having a dildo put into their vaginas or thinking about having a speculum inserted. Two very different contexts. One associated with pleasure, the other like, you know, getting a pelvic exam. Well, in the condition of thinking about a dildo being penetrating their bodies, their vaginas, their brains look like an orgasm. So my participants in my studies were able to use their imagination to remember or to bring about awareness of their bodies and imagine dildo penetration. And it lit up the brain like actual physical stimulation. So the takeaway from my research is really the brain is the most important sex organ of all, and that if our minds are on the sensations and the experiences that we're having, or alternatively on fantasies, whatever is kind of pleasurable, we're going to be able to be present to the situation, whereas if we're thinking about what we have, the laundry or other kinds of things. So it's not just thinking. It's how. That gets in the yeah. way. It's the type of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So right. It's what you don't want a listener to hear is this idea of like, you have to turn, if you want to have an orgasm, you have to turn your mind off because that's not realistic. And in fact, the science does not back it up. But what you are saying is that there is something about mindfulness, which is Dr. Lori Brado's work, right? About like mindfulness, like bringing where your attention is directed, that's going to affect and shift and shape your sensations. And our minds are limitless. Our, Our fantasy life, our imaginations are quite limitless. And so the goal isn't to turn your mind off. There doesn't need to be that kind of a goal, but there could just be a partnering with your mind to invite in those thoughts that are pleasurable and redirect the thoughts that are about laundry. Because laundry may, laundry may pop into your mind while you're in an erotic moment and you can just disinvite it, right? You can just move it along and invite something else in, come back to the sensation, come back to the present. Yeah. And you can train yourself for that. You can train yourself to be in your sensations all through your day. You know, we habituate to so much, like we sit on our tushes on on the chair. We're not registering sensations from the tushy, but we can then go scan our bodies and notice, number one, that we're in our body. And we can also practice. I often have 
uh, people have trouble getting to the orgasm or having pleasure in the orgasm to think about touching the whatever part of their bodies, whether it's genitalia or anything. Think about touching it and touching it so that what we say in neuroscience is that the neurons or the cells that fire together, wire together, we create this pathway where just thinking about things, imagery can be very effective in stimulating the same parts of the brain that actual touch does. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Allowing your attention to come to the part of the body, like really just like letting your attention be in your body. And, you know, it means having to feel two things. One, feeling entitled to feeling good. And two, for a partnered experience, having a partner who really, really is able to track along with you and and modulate themselves, modulate the kind of touch that they're offering to be in line with what you're wanting, right? I mean, that's the, that's the challenge of partnered sex is that is that a good lover is a lover who is deeply curious about and invested in feedback versus headlong determined to just kind of play out a script. Right. And not feeling like it has to be them that's giving you the orgasm. So it's really not about, for men, it's a lot about performance. For women, it's a lot about being objectified. So if we can really pay good attention to each other and we can, you know, really attune to the partner watching and paying attention. Paying attention changes your brain. Well, and that's, you know, you had mentioned before the orgasm gap, which, you know, for someone who's listening who doesn't know that that research, I mean, the orgasm gap really exists in sexual experiences between, you know, male and masculine presenting folks and women, right? That, 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 when, that when, when sex happens with people who have who have been socialized in different ways, who have different genitalia, like that's heterosexual sex is the sex where you see orgasm gap. It's not same sex experiences where those orgasm rates are very comparable and very high. The orgasm gap is between heterosexual men and heterosexual women. Exactly. Yeah. So much to learn, so much to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next for you? What are you, what are you excited about these days? I'm very excited about having conversations with people like you, connecting the dots with other people who are out there doing this. I got sort of insular in doing research, like basically the past 15 years between kind of what you have to do to get to speed to learn how to do that kind of research and then analyzing the data and writing the papers and writing other papers and writing a book. You know, also as a clinician, I talk to my clients, but I don't have a lot of contact with other people. So what I'm excited about are conversations with people like you, where we're making a difference, where we're encouraging all people, not just women, but all people to prioritize connection to be able to listen to their bodies. Because, you know, when we listen to our bodies, we actually behave better. When you're really able to tolerate your own feelings and listen to them, you're not going to get hijacked into acting out. And actually, here's a funny example of this. Years ago, they had that experiment, Milgram, follow the authority, where the participants thought they were giving very high shocks to other participants and everybody was just horrified how high the people were willing to go where the Confederate, the person who really wasn't part of, who wasn't the actual subject, but was part of the study, was like crying and yelling. 
I read a book years ago by Lauren Slater called Inside Skitter's Box, and she presented something very interesting. When they debrief these people, the only difference between the people who went all the way with shock, where they went, which really, you know, I think traumatized some of the participants, which is, yeah, and that's why we've we've created things of, you know, a lot of restrictions about what we can do with deception and all of that. But it wasn't religion, it wasn't sex, it wasn't anything like that. People who wouldn't press the button all the way said, I felt sick in my body. Yeah, they listened to their bodies. The people, yeah, in order to hurt another human being, in order to cause harm, you really do have to override a deep sense inside your body. Because you said in the beginning, we are wired for pleasure. We are wired for connection. We are. That is part of being human. That in order to hurt somebody else, to inflict harm, we really have to be overriding cues from our own bodies. Yeah. So the body is really smart. We are less likely to just follow authority. We might not be as good about buying products, you know, because we're more in touch with what is really going to make, give us pleasure. Intuitive. Yeah. 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 Connection. Mm, well, I think a voice like yours is so important for so many reasons. First of all, all the badassery about going back, you know, continuing your education when you were 50 and all of the ways in which you are a role model, just in terms of how you are living your life, but also to have a researcher who has been in the lab and in the data and now who's like lifting up her head and saying, okay, like, let's keep, I want to be talking with all of you about this because that is one of the risks that really great high quality science sometimes, you know, there just needs to be bridges, right? From the research lab to the general public, because everything that you've done around sex research is so important for all of us. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you've been in the lab. I'm grateful for the people that you have, have followed you into the lab. And I'm so excited to, be able to kind of talk with you about all of what your findings have meant and all of what they mean for us. So thank you. Thank you so much. And the the addendum to that is educating people and my colleagues about the core emotions, the body wired and emotions and how the three level brain mind works. So that when we work with our clients or we work with ourselves, we're able to really address the importance of listening into and working with the core emotion so that we can feel safe. You know, trauma is a big deal, a lot of trauma. And people, people who are doing all this wonderful research with trauma all say the same thing is that we can't heal until we feel safe. And when we feel safe, we can rebalance the nervous system. And then we're not in that, all of that flight or fight stuff. And then we can connect. Well, Nan, where, when someone is listening and they want to learn more about you and more about your work, we are, of course, going to have links in the show notes to your book. But what what else? What's a great place? What are the great ways to get to know more about you and your work? The easiest way is just go to my website, AskDrNan.com with Dr. Spelled Out. And you can book a free you know, conversation with me. I'm happy to talk to anybody and everybody or ask questions. You can ask a question, which I respond to. There's a place right on the website or you can just book a, to get on the phone or Zoom with me for, you know, like a consult that we, for free, we can have a conversation. And I encourage people to read my book because there's just, it's so important to understand how the body mind works so we can work it better. That's wonderful. That's what a generous offer. Okay. Well, I, I, that's a really generous offer. And I love, 
I love that you are sharing yourself in that way. And we've got links to the, to the book in the show notes. It's a wonderful book. So I'm excited to just be boosting the signal on, on your book and on all of your work. Thank you so much. It was a labor of love and a lot more fun to write than my papers. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Nan, for joining me for this enriching conversation and sharing your research findings with the Reimagining Love audience. I hope we can all follow Dr. Nan's lead and continue to destigmatize conversations about sex and pleasure by keeping up with the latest scientific research and prioritizing these conversations with our partners and friends. If you're ready to dig deeper into Dr. Nan's research, I highly encourage you to check out her book, Why Good Sex Matters, which is linked in the show notes. Thank you for joining me here on Reimagining Love. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon. Or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. <laughs>